Would you stand up on your feet and pick up your Bible if you got it or your Bible on your phone? I want to just read a scripture to you. We're going to stand for the reading of the word. Come on, somebody. Preach. It's going to be good. I got some illustrations up here. You don't even know. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John the apostle. He was the longest apostle to live, and you're going to find out why at the end of this sermon. We're starting a new series called We Are. Everybody say, We Are. Before we can go do what God's called us to do, we got to be who God's called us to be, because being always comes before doing. I asked God, I said, God, what do you want me to preach on in September as we kick off our first series for the school year? And he said, talk about who the church is and who I've called them to be and how much I love them and, and the the plan and the purpose for the local church and the church worldwide. And so we're going to get into that today, but we're going to scratch the surface. And then next week, I'm so excited. The word I'm going to bring next week, I just feel like God's been stirring it in my heart. Don't miss next week. Turn to the person next to say, don't miss next week. But today we're laying a foundation. The foundation is we are loved. We are loved by God to love people with God's love. And John says in 1 John 4, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Anyone who do does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Man, I just, I love John's revelation of the love of God, that it's not about our love for him, but his love for us that propels us to love people and propels us to love God back. And today we're going to get into that. And one more scripture I want you to read, and that is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We'll put it up on the screen. But God was speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of God. At that time, the church didn't exist, but God had a people group. He had a family. And the Israelites were his family. And so he tells Jeremiah to speak to the Israelites, which translate that as the church today. God, God's speaking through Jeremiah to his people. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says, My people have done two evil things. So he's not talking about atheists here. He's not talking about pagans. He's talking about his family, church folk right here. He says, they've done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Now, you're here today and you're saying, what does that have to do with 1 John 4? We're going to find out. I'm glad you asked. We're going to dig deep into it. But before we do, I want us to say something we're saying every week. Say, I'm here on purpose because I have a purpose. My heart is open. My mind is ready to receive. Because God's not finished with me yet. My best days are right in front of me. And I have victory in my life. Because Jesus, because Jesus, because Jesus lives in me. Do you believe that, church? 
God, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that in you we live and move and have our being. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to move in this service right now. God, speak through me, a broken vessel. God, just use me for what you want to speak to the church. God, thank you, Lord, for today. Use all of us as a church. God, use us individually, but use us as a whole, God, to be your hands and feet, to know who we are, to know whose we are, so we can do what you've called us to do. And Lord, I thank you that after today, we would be refreshed, renewed, encouraged, and changed from the inside out to do what you've called us to do, most of all, to be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. Give your neighbor a high five, a hug. Tell them they're looking good this morning in their church outfit. Come on. You got all dressed up. You got to get some compliments from someone. <laughs> the most Googled phrase in 2012, people go to Google all the time asking Google questions like Google's God or something, but God is God and his word has all the answers. But people go to Google and the most Googled question just over a year ago was, what is love? What is love? We've got more love songs than we know what to do with. More books about love. And by the way, the first thing that pops up when you type that in on books is Fifty Shades of Grey, which I'm pretty, much, pretty sure that's not about love. Haven't read it, but don't plan on it. Um, but the thing is, is our world has a warped view of love. We've got this idea that love is infatuation. It's about lust. It's about uh, someone's body. It's about being with somebody that makes you feel extra special. And, and we've got this wrong view of love. For me, as a kid, I used to crave love, or at least I thought it was the right kind of love, but I remember I used to sit down with my dad, and I'd say, Dad, who do you love the most? Me, John, Sarah, Ruthie, or Mom? Those are all my siblings. He'd say, well, Paul, you know, I love, I, I love your mom differently than I love you guys. And I was like, what are you talking about? What kind of difference? I was like, but who do you love the most in the family? Right? Let's not beat around the bush. Which one is it, you know? He said, I love all you guys the same. I love Sarah, Ruthie, John. I love you the same, Paul. Dad, you have a favorite. Just tell me who your favorite is. <laughs> no, Paul, you're all my favorites. How many of you did this with your parents, or maybe your kids have done that with you? I was that kid that did that, and I didn't only do it with my dad. I would do it with my teachers. i go to my teacher and say, which one's your favorite? <laughs> right? I know it's not him or her. It's either me or that person over there. And me and Ashley, we were in the same class starting in fourth grade. So my wife, Ashley, and I, she was the teacher's pet in fourth grade. And it bothered me. I wanted to be the teacher's pet, but she won president of the class in fourth grade. I was running against her. I lost. I felt rejected. My teacher really liked her. She, you know, I think she liked me, but I was secondary to how much she liked her. But I had this craving to want to be affirmed and loved by my teachers, by my parents, by my coaches, by all these people. And, and, and one time, my wife called me out on this. This was right when we got married. She noticed I did something. And my brother had just made a joke that was really funny. Everybody laughed. Everybody was like, that was awesome. They were really impressed with John's you know, joke. And I tried to make the same joke five minutes later. <laughs> Have you ever done that before? Like you try to use what someone else did to try and... And she said, your brother just said that. I was like... What are you talking about? I made that up. That was an original. He got it from me. He just said it before I said it. She was like, no, why, why are you doing that? And she, I, she was laughing, and, and she said, what's the root? What's the root? Everybody say, what's the root? <laughs> to everything, there is a root. There is a drive. There is a motive. And 
oftentimes we try to do things with the wrong motive. A lot of Christians have forsaken the fountain of living water trying to find satisfaction, fulfillment in other things. Some good things, some not so good things. Whether it's, you know, drugs or alcohol or sexual immorality or, uh, or just, you know, good things. Like trying to make job, J-O-B, their G-O-D. Trying to uh, make marriage the thing that fully satisfies them. And while those things are good, they're never meant to be the thing that totally satisfies you. But then there's a lot of people that get into religious activity. And this is what I want to talk about today. The religious mindset says, I have to do something to earn God's approval. I have to do something to earn God's love. If I don't read enough, pray enough, go to church enough, do all these things, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to let God down. I'm going to lose some of his love. And so we live our lives with a glass. This is God. This is you and me. And our glass is kind of empty. And so, you know, we go to God. We ask him to fill us up. We get saved. He's the joy of our salvation. We feel full. We feel awesome. And then we start thinking about our to-do list. Loving God, loving people, going to church, reading the Bible, praying, serving, doing all these things. And we start pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out, pouring it out in our own strength, trying to please God, trying to please people, trying to make everybody happy. And then we feel empty again. We come back to God and we say, God, you know, I've done enough this week to earn some of your love. So will you give me some of your love? And, and we realize, oh, I've run out. I only have that much of God's love. And we keep doing these games and we feel empty. We reduce God's love to a small glass, a limited glass. Now go with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Because this kind of shows us what God's love is like. Ephesians 3, verse, and we'll start with 16. Paul says, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited, everybody say unlimited, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's family should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his... What's the word there? His rules? His commandments? His love. Paul's prayer was not that the church would be so focused on what they have to do for God or how much they have to strive to love God, but that they would be rooted in this one thought. The theme of the Bible, the theme of the gospel is that God loves you. Not you love God, and so because you love God enough, he loved you back. It's God loved you while you were still a sinner. God loved you while you were still unworthy. And his love is unconditionally unchanging. In other words, if he loved you when you were a sinner and you got saved, he still loves you while you're saved and you're struggling to overcome sin. Oftentimes, we get in this mindset that we are losing God's love when we make a mistake, when we fail to do something that we know we're supposed to do, whether it's wake up early and pray, wake up early and read. And so we live with this craving, this thirst to try and win God's love, to try and earn God's approval. And, and I started thinking about that, that word thirst. 
Because I preached a message a year ago to our young adults about thirsty, and I felt like God started stirring up this part two to that, which can start out our series, We Are. The truth is we are all born with a thirst. Everybody say thirsty. thirsty. We're all born with a thirst, a hole, a vacuum, something that needs to be filled. And we try everything in the world to try and fill that void. When you're a non-believer, you try everything. And then when you get saved, you start trying to fill that void with religious activity. Thinking that if I do enough of these things, then I'll finally feel like God loves me. Like I'm right with God because I've done enough stuff to earn my righteousness with God. To earn my approval, my affirmation. To earn that favor from God. And, and yet when you look in the Bible, the gospel says that God loves you based on his nature, not your performance. Religion says perform to earn God's love. Religion says work hard and God will finally be pleased with you. Gospel says God is pleased with you. He does love you, so live in holiness, live in purity. Walk out the righteousness that you already have. Religion says, no, you got to do certain things to finally earn righteousness. Gospel says, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now walk in holiness. It's not a license to sin. It's an empowerment to live holy. Religion is all about trying to do the right things to finally get God's love. While the gospel is knowing you are already loved. That is the foundation. The theme of the Bible is not... You so loved the world, and so because you did, God finally met your prayers and, and answered your hard works and your hard labor. No, the Bible is God so loved the world while it was still in sin. God so loves his church. But why do we go to these cracked cisterns? For me, I went to ORU, and I was uh, in this track and field test. I was running outside on this track, and I collapsed in the middle of the run. I hated running at ORU. Now I really like it, but back then I just despised the whole thing and my teacher she ran over to me our PE teacher and she comes over to me and I love the fact that we have PE in university it's awesome that you still get to do like PE stuff except for the running part <laughs> I collapse and Miss T she comes up to me she says what's wrong I was like I don't know and I was like I just don't want to run anymore and she was like well let's get you to the nurse's office I was like good 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 so they carry me to the nurse's office, and the nurse says, here's the problem, Paul. You're dehydrated. Why am I dehydrated? I said, I've been drinking tons of fluids. She said, what have you been drinking? All the good nutrients, Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, chocolate milk. <laughs> See, I had gained the freshman 15 within like the first 15 days of going to school there. Freshman 15 is like 15 pounds of weight that you didn't have going in. But... I, I was drinking, they have a chocolate milk machine. I don't know if they still have it. Do they still have it? This chocolate milk machine never runs dry. You can get chocolate milk anytime you want. It's the fountain of chocolate milk. And so I used to go into our cafeteria and just get it and get it and drink it and drink it. And it was clogging me up. And she said, the problem is not that you're, you're not drinking enough fluids. It's that you're drinking the wrong stuff. And you're dehydrated. And I think we have a lot of dehydrated Christians Jeremiah was talking to believers. He was talking to the people of God that we've gone to the wrong fluids. We've gone to the wrong sources. And, and the nurse told me, she said, you're going to have to switch what you're drinking if you want to get back to being healthy again. There's a lot of dehydrated Christians coming into church exhausted, just looking to be entertained, bored with God. If you're bored with God, you're not drinking the right stuff. 
Because David said, taste and see that the Lord is so good and His love endures forever. In other words, when you're drinking the right stuff, you're living an excited life with God. Being a Christian is not meant to be boring. Right now, one of the biggest threats that faces the church in America is spiritual boredom because people have started drinking the wrong stuff. They've stopped drinking the fountain of living water. When the nurse told me I'm going to have to start drinking water, I got frustrated. I said, water? Water is so boring. I grew up on water. I drink water every day of my life. I just wanted to party when I got to college. I wanted to drink some Mountain Dew. I wanted a Dewski. That's what I called it. I would drink the Mountain Dewskis. And the nurse was like, you have problems. <laughs> See, I told her, I said, listen, I grew up all my life. My parents would make me drink water at home. I said, now I've finally moved all the way across the street to go to college. <laughs> I'm out of my parents' house. Just let me drink what I want to drink. And she said, that's fine. It's your health. It's your health. You can do what you want to do when you leave your parents' house, but it's your health. It's no longer their responsibility to make sure you stay healthy. And, and so then she convicted me. I was like, okay, I'll go back to the water. And what I realized this is, is, you know, I was finally free to do what I wanted to do, but what I wanted to do wasn't really helping me. And sometimes we get this idea that freedom is doing what we want to do. Freedom is doing what God wants us to do in His love, by the power of His love. And that's when we start getting healthy again. And so I started drinking water, and I started losing some of the weight I'd gained. I started being able to run longer and, and, and have longer um, uh, exercising ability, and I wasn't as exhausted. And I started feeling strength again. And I realized water is the thing all throughout the Bible that God refers as himself as. He, he refers to himself as the living water. In the book of John, chapter 4, he talks about being water. In John chapter 7, Jesus stands up at the last day of a big festival and says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. In the last book of the Bible, last chapter in Revelation 20, 21, 22, he says, come to me, anyone who's thirsty, and I'll fill you. And when we look in the world, you know, I think about how when our nation sends people into outer space, what's the first thing they go looking for on other planets? Water. Water. Because if they find water, there might be life. When our church went to Haiti a couple years ago, we were helping build a water well there. And I remember seeing a line of people carrying buckets because they were so excited to have clean water. They lived by a lake, but the lake was dirty. And so they would drink from it, but the longer you drink dirty water, the shorter you live. For them, this clean water well was, was, was extra years of life for them. They were lining up because they knew if I can drink more clean water, I can live a little bit longer. And so they were so thankful for you, Victory, for you helping out with that. But I remember that, that scene, that moment, just craving clean water. David, in Psalm 42, he cries out, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul thirsteth, longeth after you. David had a glimpse of how good God was. He didn't want to go back to any counterfeit. He knew adultery just wouldn't do what God could do. He knew that sleeping around with anyone and everyone that he saw just wouldn't do what God could do. His son Solomon, he thought he, he, thought he could find it in education. He thought he could find it in sex. He thought he could find it in marriage. And so he had 700 wives, and yet he was still empty as can be. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all vanity, Solomon said. 
And yet, why do we keep turning to everything and anything that can't truly satisfy us? We're looking for love in all the wrong places. I want you to just turn with me real quick to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, there's a story about a woman who finds out the source of real life. And how does it change her? Genesis 29, verse 16. Laban had two daughters. One, his oldest, was named Leah. And the other one was named Rachel. Now Leah had weak eyes. That's kind of a sad thing to say. Because it, it, it contrasts Leah with Rachel. It says Rachel had a lovely body and a lovely face, but Leah had some weak eyes. They were trying to be nice here in the Bible by saying basically one sister was prettier than the other sister. Now, don't get mad at me. Send an email to the Bible if that offends you. <laughs> Jacob fell in love with obviously the beautiful girl, the beautiful sister, and, and he told the father, I'll work for you seven years if you give me Rachel your younger daughter, as my wife. Laban says, sure. So Jacob worked seven years, and it felt like a few days. Everybody go, ah. It's a great love story, right? So Jacob works these years, which feel like a few days. He marries Leah. And Laban invites everyone over in the neighborhood for a big wedding feast. Verse 23, that night when it was dark, Laban snuck Leah into Jacob's tent. Now, Jacob was a deceiver, but this time he was about to be deceived. Jacob wakes up in the morning and it says, there was Leah with an exclamation mark. I mean, this is kind of a sad story for Leah. She was forced by her father to marry this guy who didn't really love her, loved her younger sister. So she's caught in the middle just feeling rejected, feeling completely embarrassed and ashamed how her husband is treating her. Laban says, hey, listen, it's not our custom to marry off the younger before the older, so that's why I gave you Leah. Work another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel too. So Jacob works 14 years altogether to get Rachel. And here in the middle of all of this, Leah is feeling more and more rejected. Rejected. I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life where I felt rejected. Moments where they were picking people out on the basketball court to be on their team, they didn't even pick me. Like, I was the last pick, but they still didn't want me. They were looking for other guys in the gym. They're like, is there anyone else? Go check the halls. Maybe was, I was like, guys, I'm right here. I could be the 10th man. Just go see if someone else is out there besides Paul. Paul, scoot over there. You know. Have you ever felt rejected before? Here's the amazing thing. When we get rejected, God shows up and he accepts us. Whom the world rejects, God amazingly accepts and not only does he accept, but he shines his favor down on those who feel rejected. Before you go out to show God's love, you need to know God loved you before you ever loved him or anyone else. Before you go out to try and accept other people, you need to know you were accepted in God's eyes, even in your worst state. He accepts us as we are, but the beautiful thing is he doesn't leave us there. He makes us just like Jesus. But he takes Leah, he takes notice in verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, rejected, God loved her and enabled her to have children while Rachel could not conceive. Here Leah is accepted, she's loved, she's chosen. Just turn to someone next to you and say, I'm chosen. 
Leah is the chosen one. She's God's number one draft pick. He said, I want you, Leah. I know Jacob rejected you, but I've accepted you. I know the world looked at you and said you were ugly, but I say you're beautiful. That's amazing, right? But for some reason, it's still not enough for Leah. In fact, it says after this, she started having children, and she says, the Lord has noticed my misery. Now, finally, my husband will love me. Having kids is great, as long as you're married. But why are you having kids? Why was I trying to make people laugh? Why was I trying to imitate other people to try and win their approval, to impress them? Why are you doing what you... What's the root? What's the root of Leah trying to conceive and have more kids and more kids? Because after each kid, she keeps hoping and praying, this might be enough to win my husband's approval his affection, his attention. In other words, God's not really enough. I've got to find it through a man. God's not really enough. I've got to find it through him. And so she gives her body to him, and yet he still doesn't love her. She gives him more babies and hoping that he's going to finally show her some affection, and he still won't love her. Why is it that we have everything we need, but we're drawn to the one thing that we don't have? Leah and Rachel were both miserable. Rachel had the affection of her husband, but she didn't have kids. And she was angry as can be at Leah, watching Leah have these babies. Leah had the achievement, but she didn't have the approval. Rachel had the approval, but she couldn't have the achievement. And for some reason, it made both of them miserable. Finally, at the end of chapter 29, Leah has this baby. And she finally gets this glimpse of how much God loves her. And so she names this baby Judah in verse 35. And she says, now I will praise the Lord. And she stopped having children. Judah might sound familiar to you because his name is mentioned in the genealogy leading up to Jesus. When you go back in all the names, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it leads up these 28 generations up to Jesus, and then another 28 generations. In there it says, and Jacob's wife Leah had Judah. And Jesus came from the line of Judah. He came from the tribe of Judah. When you felt the most rejected, Jesus says, I can work with that. I can work with someone who's broken, who's despised, who feels rejected. He accepted you at your worst. I was in Peru just two years ago with Victory. We took a mission trip there. And I remember we went to the Amazon River and we were in this small little village called Baylin. It was the poorest place in South America. And it was in the floodplains of the Amazon River. And so when the flood would come up, all of where they used the bathroom would come on top of these people. They didn't live in homes. They lived underneath branches that they would sleep on their trash. And they were dirty as can be, didn't have diapers or clothes. And we went there to minister to them. And I picked up this little boy. He just wanted to, wanted to be held. He was three years old. And he just crawls up on me. And as I'm holding him, he sneezes in my face. So I wipe the sneeze off. And I'm thinking, I want to put this kid down. <laughs> and then he starts peeing on me. And I'm thinking, I really want to put this kid down. But I heard God say, hold him, hold him, hold him, hold him. So I was holding him and God said, this is what it's like when I hold you at your worst. Because you think that your righteousness is so awesome. 
but it's filthy rags. I loved you before you could ever do enough to earn love from me. And I love you for every stink, every mistake, every failure. And while I was holding him, it was like I felt God was holding me too. Just hold him, just hold him, don't let go. Little boy looked up at me and smiled just like he didn't even care what he just did to me. <laughs> I just smiled back at him like, you are one loved kid. God loves you so much. God loves you so much. Sometimes we miss that. My friend who grew up in Texas, southern Texas, a little town called Paradise, and uh, his dad used to handcuff him and his little brother to a bolted-down table in their back shed in their backyard. And he would pull out tools and quote scriptures and beat them on their back. And he would take out these huge, heavy metal tools and he would beat the youngest brother in front of the older brother because he knew the older brother, it hurt him even more to watch that. He would rather be hit himself than watch his younger brother be beaten. And so when he heard in church that God was his father, he hated God so much because the father that he grew up with was not the kind of father that he wanted when someone said, God's your father and he's there for you. And he ran from God for years of his life, hated God. And I, and I remember talking to him, my friend, Sean, finding out about this whole story that had happened in his life. And he said, Paul, when I was 18, I went to a church service where someone was talking about the unconditional love of God. And he said, I finally started to get it because all my life I was trying so hard to just get away from God. Because when people told me he was my father, I just didn't want to have anything to do with him. I had had a father and I hated my father. And he said, but in that message, in that service, it was like the love of God started ministering to me, started washing away my mind of all the pain, all the abuse, all the anger, all of the religious abuse that happened in my family. And he said, I remember going down to that altar that day and finally feeling like God loved me and that he was a good dad. Today, my friend Sean is a youth pastor in Seattle. He's ministering with the love of God, helping boys and girls to feel the true love of God. But I tell you that story for this. Some of you here today, you've grown up with a dad that was either abusive. Maybe you were abusive. This isn't to condemn you. This is to show you God loves you even in your worst state. He's not the kind of dad that walks out on you. He's not the kind of dad that gets upset and hits you when you make a mistake. He's not the kind of dad that runs away when you're in your worst situation. He's the kind of dad that runs towards you when you make a mistake. He's the kind of dad that gets down with you in the middle of your mess. He's not intimidated by your sin. He's not intimidated by any of the junk you've walked through. He sees you and he loves you just as you are. He loves you today, not the future you, not the improved you, not the better you. He loves you right now so much. And I know that sounds so simple, but for some reason, we spend most of our lives digging cracked cisterns trying to feel loved, trying to feel affirmed, whether it's the approval of people, how many likes can I get on Facebook, on Instagram, how many followers can I get on Twitter, how many times will people favorite my stuff? It's never going to be enough. Leah, even though she stopped having children after Judah, the very next chapter, she was back at it again. She starts having kids again, trying to win the approval of her husband. And, and she has this sixth kid, and she says, now this time, the women in the town, they're going to call me happy because I finally feel so happy. She's not happy. 
Anytime you tie your happiness to what people say about you, you'll never be happy. Anytime you tie your happiness to finally having more kids, your happiness to finally selling your house, your happiness to finally getting married because you hate being single, your happiness is tied to finally getting a promotion or finally getting that money that you wanted or that fame, it, you'll, you'll, you'll never be happy enough if it's tied to stuff or if it's tied to people because they let us down. And I love this story in John chapter 4, this woman at the well. She's going to get some water. She's carrying this empty jar, and she comes there, and I want our pianist to come up here as I get ready to close. She's carrying this empty jar towards the well, and Jesus meets her at the well, and he says, woman, would you get me something to drink? And she said, why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? They didn't get along. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And then he said, if you knew who I was, woman, you'd ask me for a drink. And she said, excuse me? You got nothing to draw from the well. You, where's your jar? You've got nothing to pull water out. And he said, I've got something that will leave you never thirsty again. He said, what I will give you is rivers of living water. It's going to fill you so much that you'll overflow. You'll have more than enough. You'll never be thirsty, thirsty, thirsty thirsty again see the word thirsty has a lot of meanings these days thirsty is no longer just about getting something to drink my friend AJ showed me that a couple years ago he pointed out these girls he's like man them girls are thirsty I go do I need to go get them something to drink he said no bro he said they're thirsty for attention it's like look at them they're just just desperate for a compliment, just desperate. They're doing everything they can. And, and so I went to the Urban Dictionary to look up what does thirsty mean these days. Thirsty means overly eager to get something or someone, desperate, craving the attention of the opposite sex, trying to get them to notice you, doing everything you can to finally feel satisfied, but still, truth is, it's not enough. Because until he's enough, it will never be enough. Even the good stuff, even marriage, and Jesus looks at this woman at the well who's so thirsty. He says, woman, I can give you the drink that will never leave you thirsty again. She says, I don't know about that. And he said, let me tell you something, woman. He said, you've had five failed marriages. You were with one guy and you just weren't happy. So you left, went to the next guy. We don't know all the stories, but I assume Jesus and her had a little bit more to say about those five marriages. She went from one to the next. Maybe one guy rejected her. Maybe he cheated on her, and so she went to the next and to the next and trying to find love, trying to see who's going to show me attention, affection. Please affirm me. Please approve me. The addiction to the approval of man is a dangerous God. It's a dangerous cracked cistern that never will satisfy you. And he says, here's the deal. The man you're with right now, the sixth man in your life, you're not even married to him. You're living with him, but you're not married to him. This is like a Jerry Springer episode right here. <laughs> Jesus is like, we can fix this today without Jerry. Let me be Jesus. Let me fix you today. 
She starts talking to him about all this religious stuff. She's like, well, Samaritans worship here. Jews worship there. I don't know about this. And he says, hold on, you're missing it. The main point is I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm everything you need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not Jesus plus pornography. It's not Jesus plus drugs. It's not Jesus plus alcohol. It's not Jesus plus sexual immorality. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. You don't need the likes on Facebook. You don't need the followers on Twitter. You don't need all of that stuff. The results of knowing how much God loves us should be an overflow of how much we can love other people. Oftentimes, we're using those things as prerequisites to earn God's approval. Prerequisites like, I've got to do this, I've got to love these people, I've got to forgive. So we look up love, tell me what to do, just tell me what to do. I just, I don't need to know who I need to be, I just need to know what I need to do. So we go to 1 Corinthians 13, I've got to be patient, got to be kind, got to be gentle, got to forgive, got to do this, got to do that. And Jesus says, hold on, before you go and do, 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 you need to receive. Because the Bible is not about you being the giver, it's about you being the recipient of a greater giver in your life. And when you're the recipient, everything that happens after that is just overflow. It's just overflow. And so your marriage is not about squeezing everything that you got that week from God out of you so that way you can go back and try to get more. It's just the overflow of how much you already feel loved. And at work and walking in love and being patient and being forgiving and accepting people because you know how much God accepted you at your worst. It's just the overflow. Jesus wanted her to live in the overflow. And so that day, that woman left the jar. And it says that she went back to her town and she told the whole town, you will not believe who I met. I think I met the Messiah. I think I met the one. And it says that that whole town came to know Jesus because of that woman's testimony. But the thing I love the most is that she left the jar because she had found something greater. That jar represented an empty heart. It was a symbol of what she felt like on the inside. It was cracked. It was broken. She was trying to find it through husbands, through marriage, through everything. Jesus said, I can do for you what even marriage can't do for you. Marriage is great. Kids are great. Finances is great. Job is great. All of those things. But Jesus says, that can't be your identity. That can't be your source of sustainability. I have to be everything for you because I'm the only thing that can fill that hole, that void, that thirst in your life. I'm the only one that can meet it. And when I was thinking about all this, I came to Matthew chapter 8 where this leper shows up to Jesus. Verse 1, Matthew 8 verse 1. This leper sees Jesus coming down a mountainside and he cries out to Jesus. He says, Master, I want to be healed. And Jesus sees him. In fact, he sees him from a distance. Jesus sees you all the way in the back. Jesus hears you before you even speak. And what I love the most about this moment is in Matthew 8, verse 3, it says that Jesus heard the leper, and when the leper asked, would you heal me, would you make me clean, before Jesus spoke to the disease, it says he touched him. He touched him in his worst state. Now, leprous people were not allowed to even be close to a clean person. Leprous people had to live in a separate colony. Their skin was decaying. Stuff was falling off. If they touched someone, they made everybody unclean. If you got touched by a leprous person, you had to remove yourself from the community. And so Jesus touches him while he's still unclean. 
Jesus can touch you while you still feel dirty. And he's the only one that can clean the dirtiness off your soul, off your mind. He's the only one that can cure you. He says, let me do for you what a drug can't do, what a bottle of alcohol won't do, the packs of cigarettes that you brought in here with you won't do, the pornography on your laptop won't do, the adultery that you're in won't do. Let me do for you the thing that you're trying to go to every cracked cistern to find. And he says, let me be enough because I'm it. I'm all you need. And when he touches this leprous man, he says, now be made whole. And that day, that, leprous, that leprosy left the man. He was healed by Jesus' words, but his loneliness was cured by Jesus' touch. You can have a smile on the outside, but be dying on the inside. Leprosy people, they, they wrapped their wounds with lots of cloth. Today, we may not have leprosy on the outside, but maybe there's a spiritual leprosy on the inside. We wrap it up with nice makeup on our face, a good smile. A couple weeks ago, on the news, we found out Robin Williams took his life. We thought he was one of the happiest guys in the world. It just proves you can have a great smile and be dying on the inside. Maybe you came here today and things just aren't right on the inside. Jesus told me to tell you, he sees through the makeup. He sees past the bandages. He sees the pain. He knows what you're dealing with. And he says, I can fix that. I love you even with that. He wasn't telling the woman that she was so bad with all of her marriages. He was saying, I still love you. I know you're on your sixth, but man, I still love you. Not man, woman, I still love you. Jesus was showing. I want you to stand up all over this place. Here's the bottom line. As long as we look at God, don't miss this point. Right here, right here. As long as we look at God with this small glass and we think that's all he has, I just got to get enough to, to just get over the hump this week. I got to come to church to just feel like I've been approved by God. And so, Lord, just give me as much as you can. And Okay, that's, that's all you get, honey. That's all you get, children. I, don't, I only got a little bit of love from God this week, so all I can give you is that much, just a sprinkle, just a drop. But God says, I've got unlimited amount of love. My love never runs dry, never gives up. I want that big bucket to come out here. Kenneth, bring it out. This is what God really is like with us. In fact, he's more than just a bucket. I can get the water hose and we can do this all day. This is what Jesus does for us. He wants us to feel his love every day. Go ahead, just start pouring it, Kenneth. Every day to feel his love to the point where it's overflowing into the people around us, overflowing into God and our to-do list that we never run out. Your marriage will never feel empty again when you put God and his love at the center of your life. I'll get the water hose. We'll just keep going because he never runs out. He's the fountain of living water. He's the true, clean source. He's everything you need. He's everything you need. All over this place, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes because today, Jesus is telling you, I can be enough. The boyfriend you feel like you have to have, the girlfriend you feel like you have to have, the likes, the, the approval, the affirmation, the money, the house, all of it. He said, I can do for you what nothing in this world could do for you.